Hey friends, my name is Ryan Hughley. I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I want to welcome you to our podcast. We're working to build a community position to experience God in daily life. Our weekly teaching is one piece of that work. So as you listen to this week's message, my prayer is that you would hear God inviting you to respond to his love and his desire for you. For more information, you can visit ridgeline.church. Well, if you, uh, if you have not been here the last few weeks, we are in a series this fall that we have called Positioned for Change. And we are doing everything that we can to position our entire church family uh, in, in, in such a way that we would experience life-changing relationship with Jesus every single day. And so what we are working to do is we're working to align uh, our lives uh, as a community around these three rhythms in life that last week we talked about our weekly worship, sitting with God, and formative friendship. And so for the next couple of months, we're going to spend probably a few weeks on each one of these positions, uh, trying to press in and look at it from different angles, and then just slowly learn how do we actually begin to position our lives around these three things. And so what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to spend some time talking about uh, friendship, what we call formative friendship. And I was thinking about this kind of weird season, I think, that we are in when it comes to relationship right now, and that when it comes to friendship, I think we're in kind of a conflicted season. And what I mean by that is, on the one hand, um, after more than a year, I guess, of kind of social isolation due to everything to do with COVID. We've had like, what, 18 months of that. I think that we feel the effects of loneliness more than ever before, and we are probably more tangibly aware of how important friendship is than ever before. So on the one hand, we have that. We've had 18 months where all of our relationships have been tested. We've been tested because of isolation. And so we're just super aware, like loneliness is really hard and we really need to have friends. Like, do you know that prior to COVID, so this is before the last 18 months, prior to COVID, 61% of people surveyed report struggling with loneliness. So that was before we got like forced into loneliness. 61%. And uh, loneliness is, is defined as the gap between the social experiences that we long for and the ones that we actually experience. So 61% of people would say there's a massive gap in their life between what they long for relationally and what they actually experience. And the truth is, loneliness is not just like a felt emotional thing. It's a really, really severe problem specifically chronic loneliness over a long period of time. Obviously, there are all of the depressive symptoms that would come with loneliness that we would anticipate, meaning that we feel sad, it can be easy to feel very hopeless or maybe even in a state of despair. But do you know that it actually has proven to increase the likelihood of things like heart disease, type two diabetes, and arthritis? Uh, in fact, people who struggle with chronic loneliness are two times more likely than the average person to develop Alzheimer's later in life. And there was actually a uh, neuroscientist at BYU here locally who has found that there is a higher mortality risk 
amongst those who struggle with chronic loneliness than, than people who smoke up to 15 cigarettes a day, are alcoholics, or are morbidly obese. You're, the, the risk of mortality is higher when we are chronically and deeply isolated and lonely. And so the point of all this is just to say, we are not built to be alone. And after COVID, we all get that, right? So on the one hand, we have that. We have this deep longing in us right now for deeper relationship because we've been living in the absence of it for so long now. But then, on the other hand, we're all feeling a little more socially anxious than we used to. Like yesterday, we were downtown for my birthday. We went into this bakery, and this guy, I mean, he wasn't doing anything wrong, but this older guy came in, and he was just too close to me. Like, I've really grown accustomed to, like, you're going to get pushed back six feet if you get within that. And this guy, was just, I just felt like he was on my shoulder the whole time. And I've noticed in myself, and I, I'm, I'm not, I've never really been super prone to social anxiety, and I feel a little bit more anxious now in social settings than what I used to. Furthermore, we are all far more ideologically entrenched than we used to be. We're more politically divided as a culture than we have ever been. And so all of that to say, when it comes to friendship and relationship, it's just so much more complicated in this season that we're in because we are longing for relationship, but we have all of these conscious and unconscious reasons why it's very difficult for us to enter into them. And then I would say, I guess the third thing you could pile on top of that is that when you read the scriptures and we get to see what God's vision for biblical community or what we call formative friendship is, it's, it's honestly something that many of us have never experienced in our lives. So I was thinking through all that and praying through all that this week, and I was just thinking like, God, what do we, what do, we do with this? What do we do with these giant obstacles is what they feel like that sit between where we are and, and what it seems like he has called us to. What do we do with that? And as I was praying through that this week, I just, I heard these two words, patient intention. That we need to be patient. Okay, we can never, I just, we just have to continue coming back to this. We cannot underestimate the degree to which our souls have been disrupted over the past two years, Okay. It's like, it's impacted us in ways we still don't totally understand. This will be the thing that marks our generation. This is our Great Depression. This is our World War II. Like, this is what will mark our generation. The two years in our lives where the globe shut down. So we can't underestimate the impact that it's had on us. We need to be patient with that. And it's going to require intention. Because my concern is, if we don't take intentional steps patiently, and slowly toward deeper and deeper experiences of friendship in our lives, it's not going to just get better with time. We're just going to get weirder. Okay? Like we, like that's the, if I, when I think about like what happened during COVID, all of our crazy calcified, that's what happened. All these things that are like ripping us apart, we've always been crazy like this, but we just were used to like rubbing up against one another. And so your crazy was like kept in check. But then for 18 months, it was just you and your cats and all that crazy calcified, and now you're a nutbag. And so if we do not intentionally and slowly take steps toward being human again, it's not going to get better. 
And so here's the big idea that I want to look at today as we come to this topic of of friendship. I'm really going to talk about three things today. I want to talk about friendship, hiding, and being a safe place. So that's where we're headed. I want to talk about friendship. I want to talk about hiding. And I want to talk about being a safe place. And our big idea that I want to unpack this morning is this. We were formed for and we are formed by friendship. Got that? So we were formed by God. I'll show you this in the scriptures this morning. We were formed for friendship and we are further formed by friendship, which means friendship is like mission critical in our life. It's something that we have to commit ourselves to really understanding and practicing and living out in our lives. All right, so I got three things I want to hit on today. Friendship, hiding, and being a safe place. My first point this morning is this. We can't flourish without friendship. We can't flourish without friendship. Um, I want to look this morning, if you have a Bible with you, uh, I'm going to spend the majority of our time in the Genesis story, particularly Genesis 2 and, and Genesis 3. And I think one of the great lessons that comes out of the, Gen- the Genesis story is that we can't flourish without friendship. So much of these two opening chapters have to do with friendship. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, it follows this pattern through Genesis chapter one of God uh, speaking creation into existence. And there's much debate within, uh, amongst Christian scholars about whether or not Genesis 1 and 2 is to be interpreted literally, or if it is uh, poetry, and ultimately we can land all over the map on that. Um, But there are important things that we are to glean and learn from this story about God and about humanity. And so the Genesis story follows this pattern of God speaking and creating something in a day, And then at the end of that day, he looks at what he's created and he speaks this pronouncement of blessing over it. And he uses the same word every single time. It's the Hebrew word tov. So he creates and he looks and he says, it is tov. It's a word that means good. But it means more than just, which kind of seems like because of the English way that we use the word good, it kind of seems underwhelming. He's like, it's okay. It'll do. That's the way we read it. But that's not what this Hebrew word tav actually means. It means that this, what he has created has the capacity to flourish and be fruitful. That's what the word tav means. And so every single day, God speaks and creates. He looks at it and he says, it is tav. But then one day, God's looking at Adam, our first father, who he's put in the garden Adam is in the garden alone prior to creating Eve. And for the very first time in in human history, God looks at something that he's made and he says, it is not Tav. That's what he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good. It is not Tav for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. So he says, that Adam on his own in this garden, isolated with just a bunch of animals around, he, he can't flourish and be fruitful. Because, again, we can't flourish without friendship. So let me give you some, like, I am not good at math. So here's just some, some like, I feel like straight up caveman math that comes out of the Genesis story, okay? Man minus friend equals not good, okay? Matt Johnson just died on the inside because he has a degree in math. That's my math, okay? 
human being without a friend, no tov. It's not good. We cannot flourish in that isolated state. Now, I have heard many, many pastors in my lifetime growing up in the church teach this passage as if it is only about marriage. So it makes all the single people, that thing inside of the single people that feels like they want to get married, usually the way that this passage is taught kind of amps up that longing for marriage because many pastors teach it in such a way as if what God, the only thing that God is saying is it's not good for men to be single and alone. They need a, a wife. And by and large, I do stand by that. I think that I was a dumpster fire prior to meeting Tammy. And I'm still not great most of the time. So apart from her, I'm in real bad shape. So I, I, I think that oftentimes that is very much true. But this is a statement about a lot more than just marriage. It's a statement about relationship. That we were not, and I've said this before, and every once in a while I feel like there's this kind of awkward, like, is that heresy kind of feeling in the room? But, but if you think about it, about what God says here, if he says, it is not tav, that man should be alone, then what that means is God is not enough for you. And that hard thing about that is like, well, you're like, well, what about half the songs we sing that all say God's enough? And, and what I mean by that is that we were not created to live in isolation, just me and God. We were created to live in relationship with God and relationship with one another. And God said that which means that friendship really, really matters for us. Now, here's what I, I was thinking about this this week. Even though this is not only, and I would argue not even primarily, a statement that God's making about marriage, I do think there are marital implications in that oftentimes as Christians, we think like the ceremony is the end game. Like I, I have a spouse, therefore I have done what God said to do. I am married now. But the truth is, what we're invited to in marriage is like the deepest expression of friendship that we should have. And I know too many couples that don't really seem to be making a priority, making friendship with one another a priority. Instead, it's like get, get through the ceremony and then a life of toleration. That's a lot of marriages. And so the truth is, divorce is really a friendship deficiency before it's anything else. Money matters, sex matters, our communication and roles and all that, all, all that stuff's important, all of that matters, but more than anything else, it's just a failure of friendship. And so saying yes to stepping into marriage is saying yes to like, I'm going to be friends with this person forever. So make a good choice. <laughs> So it's not just about, it has implications for marriage, but again, this is not just about marriage. It's really about friendship. And so think about this. If, if we are created for friendship, is it any wonder that so many people are hurting so deeply when over 70% of Americans surveyed say they have no one they feel like they can talk to? Isn't that, that's like one of the most depressing stats I've ever heard. 70%, Okay. So like from here over, everybody's like, I don't feel like I have anyone I can talk to. And we were created for friendship. And so what this means is so many of us are so relationally malnourished. The truth is we need the love that comes from friendship in the same way that we need air. And we need the support that comes from friendship in the same way that we need food, 
And we need the, the instruction that comes in friendship in the same way that we need water. We can't flourish apart from friendship. So why don't more of us have it? And I think it's actually pretty complicated. And actually a lot of the research that's coming out right now about the effects of COVID, it is complicated. And there is an, unfortunately a pretty stark decline in friendship taking place. And we, we weren't in like great shape on the front end. So why is it that we struggle to have friends? I wrote down a couple of things. Uh, one, one reason I think is I think we don't know how. I think oftentimes we don't have good examples for friendship. Our, our best is like a, a late 90s sitcom that we're like, it's kind of like that, right? Six people that, seven people that never seem to work, but somehow have this two amazing apartments in Manhattan. It's like that. That's friendship, right? It's not. And if anyone just randomly, if a friend just walks into my house, I'm like, I love you. You need to use the doorbell, okay? Don't just walk in. It's, it's rude. So I think a lot of the time we just don't have examples. We don't know how. And oftentimes when we do experience examples, to be honest, it's so foreign to us that we're like not 100% sure what to do with it. So sometimes I think we just don't know how. I think another reason is, honestly, we don't have time. I don't know if you've noticed this, but friendship takes time, at least deep friendship. And the reality is, as we've continued to talk about, we are prone in our culture to have very disordered priorities. And so as a result, we don't have the time and the space to actually cultivate friendship with one another. And then finally, I think some of us just are not willing to take risk. We're not willing to take risk. And by that, I mean some of us have unprocessed relational woundedness in our lives. So something happened in a critical relationship in our past. We did not process and grieve that in a way that, that allowed us to heal. And so now as a result, we are unwilling to take what feels like the very risky step to open ourselves to that hurt again. And so as a result, we're pretty closed off and isolated. And this is why, all three of these reasons, is why I would say part, true participation in a local church is so important. Because in, in a local church, we can get some examples. For, there's some great friendships in this church that we can all learn from. And we can learn together through instruction and teaching and looking at the scriptures and being in a squad with, with other. We can learn to order our priorities in a healthy way that is conducive to friendship and flourishing. And we can experience healing from past wounds in our lives so that we can have healthy relationships once again. But what is very, very clear from this Genesis story is that we can't flourish without friendship. But that's not all. Remember, I want to talk about friendship, hiding, and being a safe place. So let's talk about hiding. Number two, this is what I would say. There can be no formative friendship without disclosure. And I think this is one of the things that makes friendship so uncomfortable and challenging for so many of us. There can be no formative friendship without disclosure. So Adam and Eve are put in this garden and they are given endless freedom apart from one protective measure. Don't eat, God says, from this one tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Outside that, eat whatever you want, do whatever you want, take care of this beautiful place that I've created for you, enjoy one another, be great friends, and that's it. Just this one protective measure. And as you know, they do the one thing God says don't do. And so as a result of that, they experience 
the plague of shame for the very first time. Listen to this in verse 7 of chapter 3. It says, Then the eyes of this, just after eating, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. If you back up to verse 24, you will have already read, the man and his wife were naked, but they knew no shame. They, they didn't feel shame about that. Everything was fine. There was no sin. There was no brokenness. There was no shame in their lives or in the garden at that point. But they do what God says don't do. Their eyes are open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. That's the first act of self-righteousness in the Bible. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So Adam and Eve, their first response to shame is to hide. They hide from one another, literally sewing fig leaves together to cover themselves, to cover the thing that is causing them this feeling of shame. And then they hide themselves from God by hiding in the trees, all because they had this fear that came with their shame, fear of judgment, fear of rejection, and so they hide to protect themselves when they are feeling vulnerable. And, and so it's really important that, um, that we understand that in, in, in order for us to deal with shame, that we all feel, shame's common, shame, if, you don't have like a working definition of that. Shame is the felt sense that I'm bad. And that, and that feeling that in the midst of that is, is unbearable for me. And so they, they experience that shame and they hide. And it's a picture of us because the truth is we hide from one another and we hide from God because of fear of being rejected. If people knew this about me, if my spouse, if my friends, if my coworkers knew this about me, I would be rejected. That is a fear that comes along with some degree of shame. Now, the irony in this is in, is in safe, healthy relationships, shame, shame only gains power in the dark. And so I know that this is going to seem kind of silly, but I want to give you an image to think about this that hopefully you won't ever forget. I think shame is like a vampire, Deep thoughts. Welcome. I think shame is like, and I got vampires on the brain. We are like, so Ava's 13 now. She, had, she read through all the Twilight books in about two days, I think. And, uh, and Twilight's got a really rich history in Tammy and I's relationship. I don't want to get into it right now, okay? Um, so stop prying. But we got, a, we got a lot of vampire stuff going on in our house and in our lives right now, so it's probably why it's on my mind. But think about a vampire, okay? With the exception of Twilight, because for some reason, they just sparkle in the sun in Twilight. In every other vampire narrative, uh, vampires thrive in the dark. They thrive at night. And when exposed to light, when exposed to sunlight, when exposed to the day, to the open, they burst into flames and they die. And shame's kind of like that. Shame thrives when we hide. It gains greater and greater power over us. It gets bigger. It's amplified in our heads. But the moment that we begin to expose that by disclosing and talking and living openly about what's going on inside of us, shame begins to lose power. 
and eventually can slowly be overcome. And so this is why friendship is meant to be such a significant conduit for healing in our lives. We are meant to have a type of relationship with one another that if we have areas in our life, which we all do, so where we have areas that we feel shame about, where we have areas of struggle, we are meant to be able to, to live in the open with one another about that. And when that happens, it's dragged into the light and the power of that shame goes away. But here's the thing. God won't heal what's hidden. And so those things that we keep hidden in our lives, we're on our own in that. And the way that God has deemed that he will work healing in our lives is when we come out of hiding and we live in the open with him and with one another. But he won't heal what we hide, which means there can't really be formative friendship without disclosure without the choice to live in the open with one another, okay? And then lastly, and this is related to the second one, people won't disclose where they don't feel safe. People won't disclose where they don't feel safe. So I think that when it comes to formative friendship, there's like an ecosystem in which it really thrives. And, and I would say it has, it has two parts, okay? On the one end, you got to lose the leaves, is the way I'd say it, okay? Which means we, we got to live in the open. We can't hide from one another. Not literally, okay? This is not like a nudist thing. Just keep coming clothed, okay? We're real pro that. Metaphorically and emotionally lose the leaves, to be super clear. Some of you are literalists, so I, I really want to be clear about that, okay? So that's the first part that we just talked about. But then the other part of that ecosystem is that we have to be people who give grace. So when people step into the open and they say, hey, this is, this is what's going on in me. This is where I, I have an area of woundedness. This is where I have an area of sin. We have to be a people who are carriers of grace in response because people won't disclose where they don't feel safe. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. Notice that Adam says, when God questions him, and he says, where are you? Adam's response is, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. If people feel afraid to live in the open with us, then they will inevitably hide. So Adam feared judgment, he feared rejection, and he, he hid to protect himself from that feeling of vulnerability. And the truth is we will only allow ourselves to be vulnerable when we feel safe. We have a, a dog. Some of you know about our dog. His name is Wicket. And he is, uh, I've noticed this, this, this principle to be even true with him. Um, he, he's a pretty antisocial dog. I guess I would say that and that he, he seems to hate all other dogs and um, most humans. And I've noticed that with him, um, he, he's not prone to like roll over and expose his belly to any rando that we see when we're out on a walk. He only does that when he feels really safe with someone because he's exposing him, like he's making himself vulnerable to hurt and to attack. And so he only does that when he feels really safe. And the, the truth is, we're not that much different. We will only open up with people when we feel very, very safe, which means we have to learn to be safe people. 
for others to, to, to be open with. Because if we, if we can't flourish without friendship, and there won't be friendship without disclosure, and people won't disclose and live in the open if they don't feel safe, then we have to really, really be intentional about being safe people. And so let's talk just for a second as we start to wind down here about what that means and what that looks like. So let me, let me just share with you three things that safe people do, okay? Number one, safe people keep confidence. Safe people keep confidence, meaning that when someone steps into the open about something in their life, they don't like run around and tell everybody about it. They don't post it on social media. They don't call another friend and be like, you're not going to believe what I just heard. They don't do that. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13 says, a gossip goes around revealing a secret, but a trustworthy person keeps a confidence. So confidentiality in our relationships is like maybe the most important thing. Because if you've ever experienced opening up to someone about something and then had them tell someone else, you know what a tremendous betrayal that feels like. And it's that kind of behavior that causes a person to go, I'm never going to open up with anybody ever again because this is what happens. I have a friend that experienced that when he was in a small group. He opened up about something that he and his wife had just experienced, a tragedy they'd experienced together. He opened up with his group uh, in, in the way that he needed to to be able to flourish. And someone in that group went and told a bunch of other people. And I watched the way it closed that guy off for over a decade because of the pain of that. Because it just signals to you people can't be trusted. And the truth is some people can't. But some people can. The question I'm asking is, is what type of person will you be? Will you be a safe place for people to live in the open? Because if so, that means that we have to be people who keep confidence. Secondly, safe people show compassion. Safe people show compassion. Um, just, just for the sake of demonstration, I want you to understand, if, if you, let's say you're sitting with someone, well, let me tell you what not to do, okay? Someone, uh, is sitting with you, you can tell they're like visibly anxious and they're going to open up about something, something that maybe they feel some shame about. And, and they, they disclose that to you and you go, oh God, really? Don't do that. Okay. That's a uh, super judgy and a really quick way to close a person off. What people need is compassion. By and large, one of the most consistent characteristics of Jesus that's mentioned in the Gospels when he sees hurting people is compassion. So even when Jesus is worn out and trying to find some, some space to Sabbath and to rest and to be just with his disciples or to be alone and he is kind of bombarded by a big crowd, every single time the text says that Jesus looked on them and he felt compassion. And so when people open up to us and choose to trust us, how are we going to respond to them? And the truth is we need to respond like Jesus. We need to respond with compassion. And I find in my life that when I'm struggling with compassion and instead I'm feeling like more judgy, and, and in general, when, when I meet people who are not very compassionate or just like super high judgment, by and large, people like that have a pretty low understanding of their own brokenness. Because the 
quickest way to cultivate compassion and empathy is to be like pretty aware that you're broken too. Now our brokenness might differ. Like maybe I'm broken in some ways that you're not. In fact, I'm confident that I am. And you're broken in some ways that I'm not. But what we share in common is that we all have brokenness in us and that we're all in need of healing. And the best way that we can cultivate compassion for one another is to be aware of our own brokenness. So safe people keep confidence. Safe people show compassion. And then thirdly this, safe people practice mutual disclosure. Safe people practice mutual disclosure. Uh, unless, unless the relationship is like with a therapist or with a pastor or some sort of official counseling capacity, one of the most important ways that we can be safe people is when someone opens up and they are living in the open with us about something that we would respond in kind, right? By, by saying like, you know what? Um, like maybe me too. Maybe you struggle in the exact same way or you carry some degree of the same shame over the same issue. But, but the way that that builds trust and safety and, and, and connection with a person is very important. If you have a friend that you feel like you're working real hard to live in the open with and they never respond in kind, that feels horrible. Because I think that one of the most powerful lies that shame tells us, tell me if this connects with you. Not really, actually, that was a rhetorical thing. Just don't say anything, okay? Because if you go, boo, I don't get that at all, that will be not helpful for me. But I think one of the most powerful lies that shame tells us is it whispers, you're the only one. You can't tell anybody about this. You're the only person that struggles like this. You're the only person that's broken in this way. And I'm here to tell you, that's not true. And maybe it's just because I've been a pastor long enough now, but I'm not even like, I don't even remember the last time I was shocked by something someone told me. Because unless you really just are not paying attention, humans are amazingly beautiful and severely broken. And so there's no reason for us to really be shocked by anything that we hear. We're all capable of all kinds of things. And many of us have been wounded in some of the most severe of ways. And so what we need is this healthy ecosystem for formative friendship to exist. We need to lose the leaves and we need to give grace. And as long as we live in that together, then we will flourish and we will heal and we will experience a depth of friendship that we have, many of us, never experienced before. Now, here's what I think is kind of ironic about this story, is that Adam and Eve feared rejection. They, they thought, like, we did what God said don't do, and he is going to reject us. And so as a result, they covered themselves with these fig leaves. And the truth is, if we keep reading the story, despite there are consequences for their action, but despite the consequences, God makes a way forward for them. He doesn't reject them relationally. And in fact, and I think oftentimes we miss this little detail at the end of this story, 
But you know, God actually covers them. Because as we get down to verse 21 of chapter 3, it said, The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. So God takes this very real and tangible step to cover their shame. And sometimes we might miss this, but the text is very clear that he used skins to do so, animal skins, which means that God himself performed the very first sacrifice to atone for sin. And he covered their shame with skins from this sacrifice as a picture and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who would step into this world and would shed his blood to cover our shame once and for all. And because of that act, we remember the sacrament of communion together. That on the night before Jesus was crucified, he gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples for the last time. And in the midst of this meal that had very clear symbolism for them, he sort of flipped the script in a major way that would have blown their minds. And he took the bread that represented his body and he took the cup that represented his blood that he knew would be shed within just hours of this meal. And he said, eat and drink these in remembrance of me. Remembering that I I gave everything to cover you. No matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter how much rage, uh, shame rages inside of you, Jesus says, I, no, I've, I paid the price for all of it. And I've covered you once and for all, and you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide from me, he says, and you don't have to hide from one another. Because of Jesus' sacrifice in our place, we can be safe people. And we can live in the open with one another. We can give grace to one another. We can be conduits of healing to one another. All because Jesus shed his blood to cover over our shame and our sin. And so this morning, we're going to remember communion together as we sing. And so uh, hopefully you grabbed the wafer and the cup on the way in. And if you didn't, uh, in just a second after I pray, you can slip out to the lobby and grab that if you'd like. You can go ahead and grab that. And what I want to do is I just want to pray for us to close out this portion of our time and to transition us into this time of remembrance. And it's really, it's, I think it's pretty significant that, that Jesus gave us this tangible act to remember. Something physical and tactile. And so as you eat and you drink this morning, I want you to remember that Jesus literally died in your place. Literally shed his blood for you. as the greatest and deepest and truest demonstration of love that there has ever been. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we we thank you. First and foremost, I thank you that you, you chose not to leave us in our shame, 
You chose us not to, to live under the power of sin and brokenness and disorder. That you made a way for us to flourish and to be fruitful in life again. You made a way for us to step up and into the true people that you created us to be. And we know, Lord, that that came at very high cost, the highest of cost to you. So we thank you that you allowed your body to be nailed to a cross. And we thank you for your blood that even as it streamed from your body and even as life left your body, that blood covered over our shame. And now we don't have to hide from you anymore. And we don't have to hide from one another anymore. And so Lord, I pray that as we take communion, that we would hear your invitation this morning to come out of hiding, to live in the open with you and the open with one another. And you know how hard that is for us. So would you give us grace, Holy Spirit? Give us courage and strength. And I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would build safe, strong, formative friendships in our church. And we thank you for the way that you're already doing that. We just ask that you would do that more. Lord, I pray that there would be no one here that would be alone. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone who might be in this room right now and, and everything about loneliness resonates with them because they feel very much alone. Lord, I pray that, that even now that you would help them to know they are not alone, that you are with them and that they can have a family here. Would you do that work? We love you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving your life in our place for our sin. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would awaken their heart to faith and that they would follow you. Jesus, we give you all we have and all we are to the best of our ability by your grace. Have your way in us, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.